So, um, for the Dharma talks for today and tomorrow, um, Matthew and I had the idea that we would kind of share them and do them together and have a little bit of a, of a dialogue. And so I'm going to start today and, and go for a little while and just present some ideas. And then um, Matthew will join in and, and we'll have a kind of uh, conversation that, and see, see how that goes. You know, there's so many things to say about this topic of samadhi. Um, but what I had the idea to offer is three little stories that, that to my mind, illuminate or bring out three different but related dimensions to, to what samadhi can be or how it can move through us. Um, you know, just, just to give a little definition or clarify terms, this word samadhi is, is, a, is a Pali word and is usually translated as concentration. Um, and in some ways, that's a little bit unfortunate because I think concentration in English has a... I mean, there's something good about it. I think that's one dimension of it. But concentration in, in, in English, or at least in my mind, implies a kind of efforting and, you know, really narrow and efforting and, you know, concentrate and... and um, whereas samadhi is, you know, more, maybe more of a sense of um, gathering and centering and this soft, spacious stillness, you know, and it has a different feeling. And, um, I was also surprised in early in my practice when I heard the teaching that the approximate cause of samadhi, like what, what supports samadhi to come into being, you know, I was sure it was a certain, you know, a kind of effort and willfulness and kind of just, you know, just keep coming back to the breath, come back to the breath, right? And, yeah, you know, I mean, that... There's a place for that, but that kind of samadhi gets limited really quickly. And then I, I learned that in, in the kind of Buddhist maps, the causes of samadhi are joy and ease. It's like, oh, okay. You know, so, um, you know, so just to kind of give that little, little background. And I was thinking of, um, for this first little memory, or this little image, I was um, thinking of a story I heard when I was practicing um, at a monastery in Japan. And um, it was, 
about a boy who was in high school in, uh, I guess, the late 50s, maybe early 60s. And he was from Kyoto, and he was on the city bus coming home from school. And the bus was kind of crowded, and he was standing towards the back, and he noticed this older man you know, sitting down in the back of the bus, um, just, just sitting. He, he was a monk, you know, priest or something, had some robes on, which is not uncommon in, in Kyoto. There's hundreds of temples. And, um, so this older man was sitting in the back of the bus and uh, reading a book, reading a little book. But there was something about him that this young person noticed and he was drawn to you know in one sense it was the most ordinary scene a person riding on the bus older gentleman just reading a book but there was something about him some 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 way that he was settled and and just fully there fully present um there was something so calm about him that he was just not not conflicted. Not to, you know, it's all kind of projecting. You know, who knows, right? Yes and no. But just he's looking at this person. He's like, this person seems so at peace with himself. Like, what? Who is this? What's? And so he decided to. So, like, you know, looking at him for a little while, and then the the man uh, got off the bus. And so this young person decided to follow him. See, who, who is this? And so he walked, you know, behind him for a little while. And then he saw him disappear into the gates of, uh, of this temple. And it turned out that um, the person who he was following, the, the, you know, this older, older monk, was Yamada Muman Roshi who was considered one of the, you know, um, one of the most revered, one of the most respected Japanese Zen uh, teachers, Zen masters of the 20th century. And, you know, so this kid kind of follows him to the temple gate, kind of disappears, and he ends up um, going back to that temple a few weeks later. And... Um, Long story short, tra- trains with Yamada Mumon for 40-something years. And the, and the young boy is now in his 80s, and he's uh, Harada Shoto Roshi, who is considered, you know, maybe the greatest living Zen master in Japan. And I think there's something about this, um, you know, I mean, there's a few, there's a few different ways to understand that story. And I think when Harada, Harada Roshi, Roshi kind of means master or teacher, respected teacher. When Harada Roshi tells that story, um, he said the way he, one way he describes it is to see Mumon Roshi something in him, some quality of, of faith or uh, confidence or inspiration was aroused. And 
But when he describes this kind of um, simple radiance that this person had, when I when I think about that, I think about that that is a quality that can come from our samadhi. You know, it's like a quality of of just being there, of being so present and not distracted, not pulled this way and that way. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just an image. And, um, I think what I like about the word undistracted or not distracted is that we have many distractions. We have many preoccupations. We have many things, you know, buzzing around in our minds. And when there are preoccupations, our practice is to be with them, to take care of them, to meet them, to understand them, to breathe with them. Um, And when those preoccupations just get a little bit more quiet, we can sense into this, this kind of quality of um, continuous presence. And I was talking about with the, with the flame that's heating up a big pot of water, just that continuity of presence. Um, so maybe we could say one, one dimension of samadhi is non-distraction or undistractedness. Um, Sometimes there's a question of the difference between samadhi and mindfulness. And I just wanted to, you know, one way that I understand that is a moment of awareness is a moment of mindfulness. And it's actually not that hard, not that difficult to be mindful for a moment, you know, Someone calls your name, you're like, what? You know, I'm there. We're we're mindful. Um, But to be mindful for one moment, and then the next moment, and then the next moment, that's building samadhi. You know, so like the substance of samadhi is mindfulness. But it's these moments that are one after the other, the other. Does that make sense? You kind of get a, a, a feel for that. And this is something we all we all know. We all can do this. We do this in our life. Um, when my children first started um, looking at screens, you know, I really had an appreciation. You know, I try not to show them a lot of screens. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes they do. And I had an appreciation of just the innate human capacity for samadhi. Because with no training, (laughs) they can be totally quiet, totally still, totally present. And really, and it's like, hey, mama, hey, you know, nothing else exists. They're just, they're just there. You know, and 
you know, we, we know that we have that quality of mind. You go to a movie, you kind of just get absorbed into the story and the, the characters and the music. And, the, um, so we know how to do this. This is a natural human capacity, but it's, it's different to be, you know, absorbed in some drama or some show. Usually we're absorbed in our own drama, our own show. And the mind is showing us many movies, many um, images and memories, and we just get pulled in and, 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 and taken away with them. So the, the kind of trick is to be absorbed in the present moment. You know, so it's just redirecting this natural quality of mind that we know. So the second dimension of samadhi, um, I'm calling it non-separation. Another way of saying that, or the, po- you know, a positive way of saying that is a kind of merging or a kind of absorption when we're meditating, at first it's like, I'm here and I'm going to follow my breath. You know, we may get distracted, we may come back, but there's this sense of I'm here, I'm in the control tower, and I'm going to just breathe and follow, follow my breathing. So there's two things going on. But the more we practice, and the more we um, simplify and kind of let go of whatever, whatever is extra, even the sense of I'm doing this, how am I doing, etc., etc., the more we can just simplify and let go of what's extra, then sometimes there can just be a sense of breathing is happening, you know? It's not it's happening on its own. I'm not doing it. And it's like we're absorbed into the breathing. We're merged with the breathing. But it's just an example for the breath. It could be, it could be the sensations of body. It could be um, a sound. Um, Saida Upandita, used to, this great Burmese meditation master, used to talk about using the sound of his roommate snoring <laughs> to go into samadhi. You know, to just, just to merge with that. Merge with that. And so to illustrate this quality of non-separation, so there's non-distractedness, just continuous, continuous moments of mindfulness. And then non-separation, I wanted to read this... Um, this memory that a friend of mine wrote when he was a young monk in Japan and uh, he was he was staying at the temple of Harada Tangen Roshi who was known as Roshi-sama um, some people called him the old Buddha something. And he was also a very revered teacher and And so they're talking about um, 
hitting the drum. And in a Zen monastery, the drum is you know, this big drum, and the drum calls you to the meditation hall. You know, it's like, boom, and then boom, and then boom, 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 and boom, 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 boom. You know, so it gets, it gets more urgent. And so he says, precisely at 10, 15 a.m., Roshi-sama starts down the stairs from his room with Daiko-san attending close behind him, swishing through the hallway towards the hondo. That's a, uh, another, another room where the monks gather. Um, taking the cue, Ankai-san, this is another monk, scurries up the ladder and starts pounding the drum, slowly at first, then gradually building speed. He hits hard and loud with martial ferocity, but the sound is flat, lacks the fullness that sometimes reverberates through the taiko. Dame! No good! Roshisama shouts furiously as he nears the drum, breaking into a run out of the solemn procession of two and waving his arms at Ankei-san. Dame is... Uh, no, no. Um, breaking into a run out of the solemn procession of two and waving his arms at Ankai-san, who stops and climbs meekly down from the ladder. Ripping the drumsticks from Ankai-san's hands, Roshi-sama scrambles up the wobbly ladder himself, his four-length robes tangling around his legs and his elderly body heaving for breath. The assembly seated below watches anxiously, and Daiko-san rocks nervously at the bottom of the ladder, poised to catch his frail teacher if he falls. High up in the drum alcove, Roshi-sama strikes the drum once. It sounds flat, at least as dull as Ankai-san's. From my place on the tatami floor, I look up at Roshi-sama and feel a little embarrassed for him. I hope he wasn't trying to make a point about the drum. He's an old man, I remind myself, and just because he's enlightened doesn't mean he has the strength to hit a drum. Unfazed, Roshi-sama hits the drum a second time. The clear sound shakes the sliding wooden doors, reverberating through the weave of the pool tatami. Good hit, old man, I think. He strikes a third time. An explosive, expansive boom fills the temple, not so much shaking things as settling, silencing them. The sound blankets my mind with its clarity and weight, snapping me into a new immense consciousness. My whole field of awareness smooths out, crystallizes, and fills to overflowing with the vastness of my being. Roshi-sama, now himself a stillness, that flows through the stillness of a hall that is no longer any other than my body, descends from the alcove. He crosses his legs under his robes at his seat, rests a moment, completely unmoving in his place, and then addresses the assembled monks and lay people. I hit the drum three times just now. The first time, I hit it like Ankai-san had. Ankai-san, your hits were no good. 
Your arm was extended. Your body was bent. You were off balance. The way you were standing, it was impossible to hit the drum well. The second time, I hit it correctly. There are ways to do things. When you do things in certain ways, it becomes easier to become one with them. When your body is close to the drum, you can hit it with ease. When an action comes from your hara, that's your, your center right here, your hara. When you hold the drumstick with your hara, the result is always excellent. We must learn this in our practice to fully use the hara in everything we do. That is the way I hit the drum the second time. I hit it correctly, the way it should be done. The third time, did you hear the third hit? The third time, I just became one with the drum. The drum, the old teacher, no separation. So, I like this story, and um, so this is another element, another dimension of samadhi, to just be one with what we're doing, you know. Um, my teacher used to say about Suzuki Roshi, I love to watch him put on his sandals, you know, because he had that quality, you know, it was like just totally there, totally one with that. Um, one last, um, one last image, or one last uh, aspect of samadhi, which I think for me is a little bit more of, um, I don't want to say it's the recipe for samadhi, but it's a little bit more of like, okay, this all sounds great, but how do, how do we do this? What does this mean? Um, This is the, so we talked about undistractedness, non-distractedness, non-separation, and then what I would call this is not divided. When we're not divided in ourselves, uh, when we're not in conflict, when we're not resisting what's happening, this is the ideal condition Samadhi to arise. And so Suzuki Roshi, um, the founding teacher of, of San Francisco Zen Center, would talk about to accept things as they are again and again. And the, the deep meaning of meditation is to accept, to help us accept things as they are. And I think of that this way is a way of kindness with ourselves. It's a way of softness. Um, and Suzuki Roshi was known, it's kind of teased as a Zen master, because he was known for being so sweet and so soft. And, um, and of course, you know, the Americans loved him because he was, 
He was so encouraging. And to have this big, soft, spacious mind that can hold whatever's happening just as it is. And isn't it nice to be met by someone like that? And, you know, to be... That whatever we bring, it, it's, it's held, it's, it's embraced. And that sounds nice, right? It's kind of like ideal father or grandfather or something. Well, um, I've met Suzuki Roshi's son. And he said, that's not how my father was. and his father he said was very strict when he was in Japan very strict very exacting and very high standards for his son Um, but um, but their family went through a terrible tragedy Um, and this is I first read about this in the biography of Suzuki Roshi which was uh, which is called Crooked Cucumber. Some of you might have seen that book. It's a great book. But um, when Suzuki Roshi was some you know younger and in Japan and had young children, um, a monk who was uh, staying at their temple and who was basically mentally mentally ill, and disturbed. Um, he, on a day when, when Suzuki Roshi was not at the temple, that monk um, attacked the, his wife and killed his wife. Oh, this terrible, terrible thing that happened, terrible tragedy. And, and then Suzuki Roshi... Um, said to his son after all this happened please don't blame this monk you know please blame me because he had you know among other reasons he had insisted the family wasn't comfortable with this person but he had insisted that he stay let let him stay at the temple he needs a place to stay kind of thing and so when I learned this I thought oh no this kindness this mind that is so wide and so spacious and it can let everything be exactly as it is, that is a hard one, you know, um, a hard one quality. You know, it comes from knowing pain. It comes from knowing suffering. And when I remember that, it's like, oh, you know, there's incredible depth to that, incredible strength in that. And, and then so the Suzuki Roshi who we knew and saw and um, learned about, maybe, I don't know exactly why he was so intent on coming to the West and, and sharing Buddhism, but maybe it was also a chance for him as like a kind of reset or you know and and what he brought was was this kindness it was this sense of that 
practice in samadhi is about uh, deeply healing the divisions that are within our heart, you know, and, um, you know, a kind of wholeness or a kind of uh, sense of completeness within ourselves. So, maybe I'll stop here um, and just leave you with this sense of if it makes if it makes any if any help or makes any sense the sense of samadhi as non-distraction, non-separation, and non-division. You know, this accepting accepting quality. And the image I love for that is just the way a glass of water can be cloudy when it first comes from, not so much here in California, I guess, but where I grew up, it was always cloudy in New York. And you just knew that if you left it alone, it didn't do anything, the water would become clear. And so maybe we just need to leave ourselves alone, leave things as they are. And this quality of stillness and and safety lets things settle and then um, makes way for these beautiful qualities. So so, uh, yeah, thank you. So we thought to do a little bit kind of interview style and I would pick up some theme that's been said and, and uh, explore that, uh, pose a question back to you, Max. Um, and so, um, yeah, non, uh, non-distractedness, non-separation, non-division. It feels like a pretty complete depiction of it. Um, as you were talking, I, I flashed back to uh, a moment when one of my teachers, I was sitting a retreat, and um, one of my teachers sort of, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what was was described, but it was some some species of like bliss or something everyone wants, you know. And at the end of this, like, very compelling sort of uh, depiction of uh, what's possible in the heart, uh, he said, like, well, I've just given you an entirely new way to suffer. (laughs) And I was like, "Mm -hmm. yep. And... um, and so the kind of cruel irony around this is like samadhi is a function of non-clinging. And yet we can hear something or have ideas about certain species of bliss or, um, and we want that pleasure or we have ideas about the kind of sort of e- egoic badge that we get, you know, like the Dharma badge uh, that we get to wear after we get concentrated or something. It's like a validation that like, this is not a con, you know? 
And that's real because there's a part of us that, uh, you know, until we start to know, really feel the practice, there's a little part of our mind that's often wondering, like, is this another shell game? Yeah. Or is this like, was was the Buddha talking about me? I know he's talking about you, but me? <laughs> so, so we have these kind of like very tantalizing descriptions, right? And yet it's the fruit of letting go, of, of like relinquishing a certain kind of willfulness. Uh, and, um, and so wondering if you can share a little like, yeah, how much have you gotten tangled up in kind of cycles of craving around that? How have you sort of freed yourself from kind of fixating and trying to kind of um, almost like cling your way into samadhi? Yeah. Uh, no, it's a, it's a great, great question and great, you know, it's, 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 all, it's the occupational hazard of talking about um, practice because we, you know, I think it's helpful to know that there's a sense of, you know, the practice is onward leading and um, there are, you know, and there are interesting milestones, uh, you know, along the path. But there's no suffering like Dharma suffering, <laughs> you know, and so many retreats of like, you know, I, I, I went to, I remember once I did a long retreat and it was something like a month or something and, you know, felt like, you know, okay, some samadhi is developing. So I said, well, I'm going to go seek out the strictest most intense concentration master, Paok Sayahu, you know, this person, monk, you know, in our tradition. And his whole practice was basically don't do anything else but be with the breath, like right there, this very particular way, you know, find the breath. And you went to see him every day and reported how many breaths you could stay with, you know, and it was like, and... I, you know, got into it and started really getting into it and really, um, it was so close. I could taste it, you know, and, but he kept saying, well, keep, you know, he, he wanted something to happen for me. And just day after day, it wasn't happening. And I was, you know, pushing, pushing, looking and, um, Of course, later, years later, I realized that I was so focused on what I was, it it was like I was focused on the technique, but I had almost no awareness of how I was doing it. You know, so I thought, oh, I just have to be with the breath in a very careful way. Okay. But I, I wasn't focused on how I was doing it. And if I had even peeked a little bit at how I was doing it, I would have seen that there was a lot of striving, a lot of clinging, a lot of pushing, a lot of me 
who needs to get something for being, get, you know, get it now. And, and so, you know, in these kind of endeavors, we can be our own worst enemy. Or it's like, you know, so, um, that's like the edge of how do we refine our effort? And I would say I had a lot of motivation, but I had almost no sense of looking at the quality of, of my effort. And so I learned to back way off. And that's why I like to focus on, you know, this quality of accepting, this quality of spaciousness, of letting everything be the way it is, as it is. Because then we, we're not resisting what's happening. So we're, we're, we're healing that separation, that division. If we always want something to be happening, that's not happening. We're just pushing against ourselves. So, um, so like the what and the how, and to be really, um, yeah, to, to, to give a lot more emphasis to the how. That, that, was, that was my experience. But, you know, it was like a lot of suffering to get there. And um, you say this, I'm sure teacher said that to me. I didn't believe it. You know? <laughs> and I think part of the problem is not that it doesn't work to push, but that it almost works. <laughs> you know, so like, I'm getting there, getting closer, you know, and you kind of, something's happening. And yeah, something is happening, but um, we're, we're still, you know, there's still this big extra obstacle there. So, um, yeah, what, what, what do you think? What about you? What do you... <laughs> you look like someone who understands suffering. That means... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, um, mm, yeah. So, um, well, a, a few things are coming to mind. So one, one is just like um, in talking about samadhi and bliss and all these things on the first full day of retreat, we're not trying to torment you. Because like, we know it's complicated. And even when we start to really deepen and get still, it is, um, it's very nonlinear, yeah? And so there may be times of the day when you're very reliably you know, e- even even in retreats where I was very concentrated, there would there would be like these cycles, these rhythms, yeah. And so I would virtually never be concentrated right after lunch, yeah. That would be the time when I'm like uh, ready to resign my meditation teacher card, you know, or whatever, you know. It's just humbling time to practice when the and these kind of exertions of energy, and then we kind of depleted, and the the concentration will tend to co-vary with the level of fatigue, you know, and so we get absorbed in the visual imagery. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, just a ton of, of kind of permission and forgiveness around that and picking one's spots and, um, and almost like, um, being careful not to, to kind of fetishize, uh, samadhi, um, uh, because it, it, as an object, to, uh, as an object of craving, every object of craving overpromises. Yeah, it overpromises. We're like looking for that object to solve something in the heart, and it never fully does that. And so, wanting is always different from getting, whether the getting is samadhi or a donut. Yeah. Mm. It's never the wanting and the getting are a little different. And so, yeah, I mean, I, part of it is just um, acknowledging that this is not, in the end, a state-based practice where we're trying to, like, have a particular state. It's It's about, like, changing the baseline, the default point of our own heart. And moments support that, but it's that this is really like cultivating uh, traits. Um, And uh, I'm curious, we just have a few more minutes, but I'm curious what, sometimes samadhi is like, we usually are just, indexing, as I alluded to, the level of discursive thinking in the mind. But that that doesn't always feel like the the only way of understanding samadhi. Um, and, and for sure that that's one way. And there there are times when uh, you know it's just like graveyard silence, you know. Um, extended periods but um, but then there are other times when there is discursive thinking but there can be different layer levels of kind of I don't know it almost feels like samadhi in the body and it feels like a certain kind of of um, groundedness and yet porousness and uh, and maybe there's there are thoughts happening but um, something else is deepening. And I think of that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, just like how sensitive we get to sound, right? Like as the retreat continues, you may notice you'll sort of be even more sensitive to a loud door or something like that or cough or something. It feels like it enters our being, Yeah. And that, to me, feels like a function of a certain kind of porousness that I associate with samadhi, a sense of depth. And um, where do you you have a, a, a sense of that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes I think about it like uh, one function of samadhi. Sometimes it almost feels like the sensitivity of the senses get dialed up. So it's like we're normally, you know, someone 
never coughs or you know it's 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 doesn't really register but like there's a cough it's, oh it just really came in because we're we're sensitive and we're open and yeah i think there's so many different ways that samadhi can manifest but when it's in the body and through the body you know that's i feel like that's a particularly beneficial kind of samadhi like you know some some way some forms of samadhi can be a little bit more um, dissociated and then some can be more integrated in the body and um it also makes me think of something which may may bring it down to earth and maybe this is a good place to sort of wind down a little bit but it was also a revelation for me and a surprise to understand the relationship between the hindrances the familiar with the hindrances you kind of hear that a lot in talks but these are like the the ways we get distracted and preoccupied with desire and aversion and um, restlessness and uh, anxiety and uh, lazing or sloth and torpor or whatever and, and doubt. Those are the classic five. I used to think that, oh, you have to do, you know, it's like, well, we have, I have these hindrances, so that's already something. And then when those hindrances finally quiet down, then I can be with the breath and cultivate samadhi, you know. And what I didn't realize is that the only thing that is, you know, if you could even speak like this, that's sort of in between us and samadhi are those hindrances. Like, it's not like there's some whole other thing we need to master and do. It's like when those hindrances start to um, just soften a little bit. You know, it's not like we have to, oh, I don't have desire anymore. I don't have fear anymore. It's just like we all have moments, hindrance-free moments, ordinary hindrance-free moments. And when those start to soften, this wholeness is there. It's just there. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's as close and as natural and as ordinary as anything. And it's just, we just get pulled and pulled and pulled. So, um, for me, that brings it down to earth because it's like, oh, it's not like I have to be some superstar Olympic meditator. It's to actually just, um, be willing to meet these hindrances with some mindfulness and some care and some love and stay there and get there and stay connected. And, and yeah, as you're saying, I think that that opens us up, you know, um, the hindrances are ways of avoid avoiding the moment, you know, they're ways of, of, of sort of separating ourselves. Um, and when we're not, we're not, using these strategies, it's like we're just there in this very simple, open way. um, Thank you, Sven. Okay, okay.
said that one who cultivates samadhi sees things as they are. May each of us cultivate the patience and kindness and love to meet this moment again and again just as it is just as we are in the fullness the wholeness of our being 